From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent and Dan Raviv, Columnist for Newsday. Welcome, Cindy and Dan. Thank you. Happy to be here, Kim. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden defended his decision to withdraw the U.S. military from Afghanistan, saying in a televised address to the nation that the 20-year war was no longer serving the national interest of the United States. Biden said it was the unanimous recommendation of his national security team and military commanders to leave Afghanistan by the August 31st deadline. He rejected assertions that the withdrawal date was arbitrary. A sharply divided Supreme Court refused to block a Texas law that bans most abortions, leaving the country's most restrictive abortion measure intact. The court denied an emergency request from abortion providers to block the law, issuing a 5-4 ruling with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the court's three liberal justices in dissent. More than a million people were left without power in the wake of Hurricane Ida, and rescue crews worked tirelessly this week to get to residents trapped by floodwaters in their homes or on their roofs. Ida was the fifth strongest hurricane to ever make landfall in the continental U.S., with maximum winds of 150 miles per hour. The European Union has taken the United States off the safe travel list. The EU recommended that Americans should be banned from non-essential travel to its member states after a rise in COVID cases in the United States. The contagious Delta variant of COVID-19 continues to surge in the U.S. COVID-19 cases among children are also hitting levels not seen since winter. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Cindy, President Biden defended his withdrawal from Afghanistan when he addressed the nation last Tuesday for the first time after the final U.S. troops evacuated from Kabul airport, bringing an official end to the longest war in U.S. history. Biden also said the withdrawal signals an end to nation-building through war. His speech has been met with mixed reaction, just as the withdrawal process by members of both parties of Congress and from leaders around the world. But, Cindy, the president refers to the exit as a success. Yes, that's right, Kim. President Biden strongly defended, mainly stressing the decision to finally do what other presidents have not done, is to end the 20-year uh, U.S. war in Afghanistan. And the scenes we saw of the very last U.S. service member leaving, and then the video images we saw of the Taliban celebrating in the airport, going and surveying any sort of leftover uh, military equipment or helicopters. It was a gut-wrenching week, I think, for many, of course, first of all in Afghanistan, and then also at the White House and the Biden administration. And we've had a senior State Department official who was very involved in the efforts, saying that everyone who was involved in evacuating 124,000 people is haunted by the choices that they had to make and by the people that they were not able to get out. And you've had senior Pentagon officials, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, General Mark Milley, saying that it was that feeling a lot of pain and anger from the last 20 years and the last 20 days in Afghanistan. 
And Cindy, I was really struck by those briefings at the State Department, and especially at the Defense Department, at the Pentagon. I thought that U.S. officials were coming about as close as they ever will to saying that America lost the war in Afghanistan. America lost its longest war ever. Yes, there are Biden administration officials pointing out that certainly there were successes, that back in the year 2001, just after the attacks of 9-11, the U.S. went into Afghanistan to overthrow the Taliban government, to chase the al-Qaeda terrorist group. Ten years later, the leader of al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, was found in Pakistan, killed by U.S. troops. But there seems to be a consensus here in the U.S. that after the year 2011, Americans didn't really know what they were doing in Afghanistan, just spending a lot of money, suffering more casualties, inflicting more casualties, and trying to do what's now called, in a negative sense, nation-building. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in that part of the world and would love to see some international aid, some nation-building, better schools and roads. But at this point, the United States, having spent at least $1 trillion, that's $1,000 billion over the 20 years, Americans don't want to do that anytime in the near future again. Just pick up on what Dan said, is that a Pew Research poll showed that 69% of Americans feel that the U.S overwhelmingly failed in reaching its goals in Afghanistan. And so although a majority of Americans agree with Biden's decision to end the U.S. military uh, involvement, 42 percent do not like the way that he's handled the exit. Yes, and also the Taliban held its first press conference after the U.S. withdrawal, saying it was seeking good relations with all nations. However, we've seen drone strikes. They continue to kill civilians, and other forms of violence are being reported. So it looks like the Taliban's actions are speaking louder than their words. Yes, Kim, I think this is a huge question, and maybe even the Taliban leaders themselves don't know exactly how they are going to rule and how are they going to actually get the country under control. And I have spoken this week to some human rights activists and women's rights activists, and they point out that even if we sort of extend some good faith to the main Taliban leaders in Kabul, that they're you know going to behave differently than they did in the past— that they don't necessarily have control over Taliban leaders and fighters and throughout the whole country, and that some of the far-flung provinces, things can be happening very differently. And we are hearing that women are being told not to report to work. Women judges and other people are saying, oh, just relax at home. We don't really need you and that girls are being turned away from school. It's very hard to get information from Afghanistan on the ground at the moment. But I think it's, it, it is a very big question, and this is something that people at the State Department are starting to wrestle with. We're going to have to deal with the Taliban on some level, just first to get people out of the country who want to get out, who may be in danger. And secondly, to get humanitarian aid in, because the country is really going to face a crisis of food and other shortages. As you know, Cindy, any time there's a radical change of government, a revolution, a coup d'etat, a decision has to be made by 
other governments, in this case I'm thinking the United States government, do you recognize the new regime in Kabul, Afghanistan? Do you reopen the United States embassy? Do you let the new Afghan government control the embassy, the Afghan embassy here in Washington, D.C.? So those are decisions that absolutely send signals. Also, will the U.S. take part in international aid, which will be directed at the Afghan people to help them through all the severe problems in, in that country. But what if the money goes to the Taliban? And there's a lot of concern here in Washington. What if the Taliban do cooperate or in some way allow terrorist groups to set up bases as they did when the Taliban was in power in the 1990s? Then even looking at the Taliban, as you have pointed out, they're facing the challenge of governing a nation of 38 million people that heavily relies on international aid and imposing some form of Islamic rule on a population that now is far more educated and even cosmopolitan than it was when the group governed Afghanistan in the late 1990s. So we're just looking at this as them seeing that times have changed in their country. Yes, that's right, Kim. Certainly for uh, the generation of young Afghan girls and women who were born during this U.S.-led involvement in Afghanistan and have grown up not knowing. And some, you know, women's rights defenders who I've spoken to have said they are really concerned of a danger to the lives of girls and women who don't really know what to expect from the Taliban because they don't remember it. They don't have that experience. And for all of our listeners, just basically, women could not even leave the house to go for a walk without the accompaniment of a male family member. And that's what some women are telling me after being independent. Now they feel like all of a sudden they are dependent on a male family member to even leave the house. And women were mainly forbidden from having any kind of work outside the house and even education, even some like primary elementary school education was forbidden for girls. By the way, I found that here in Washington, President Biden giving a speech almost every day, but there was one major one marking the end of the war, August 31st, the deadline that he had set, and explaining to the American people that we're about to have a change. He said that no longer will the United States be involved in nation building, but he wanted to signal to the world that the U.S. still has massive military power and will defend its interests and will pursue terrorist groups such as the so-called ISIS-K in Afghanistan. So Biden was trying to sound tough, and of course he was also trying to show empathy and sympathy toward the U.S. service personnel and civilians who had died over the years in Afghanistan, well over 2,000, and perhaps especially to the families of the 13 who died in the final days of the evacuation from Kabul. And I just want to point out that the families of some of those 13 Americans who died, they're very angry at President Biden. They even say that he acted unsympathetically when he met some of them at Dover, an Air Force base in Delaware. And so all of this, again, has been politicized, and I don't think it has helped President Biden politically at this point. That is a very good point, and I'm just going to ask how would this affect his presidency moving forward? I think it's really too early to tell because we, of course, are just right in the midst of this now, and I think uh, average Americans 
are concerned and they are upset by the images they're seeing and what's going on in Afghanistan. People at home are flying their flags at half mast, some of them, and they are, you know, really very interested in this. But I think a lot of them will also say, okay, we did want this to end. And President Biden tried to say, even if we had ended this in June or July, the moment that we started evacuating U.S. diplomats, there would have been a rush to the airport. So he tried to say that in a country like Afghanistan, with the situation being what it is, there is just no smooth way to say goodbye. Here in the United States, in general, voters don't seem interested in international affairs. For a while, it dominates the news, but almost always that gets replaced by domestic concerns, as I know we'll discuss in the rest of this program. And uh, people in uh, Joe Biden's party, the Democratic Party, say they're confident that how he handles the COVID pandemic and economic recovery those are going to be the important issues in the elections next year and in 2024. Yes, and Dan, as you mentioned, domestic issues. Our next topic is from Texas, where the Texas state legislature passed a law that critics argue violates the constitutional right to abortion, first recognized in the landmark 1973 decision in Roe versus Wade, which prohibits states from banning abortion before a fetus is viable, typically around 24 weeks of pregnancy. So, Dan, can you tell us more about this? Conservative politicians in the state of Texas say that they are protecting the rights of the unborn fetus. And it could well be that that's a majority view in the state of Texas, but in 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that women have the right to choose if they want to have an abortion, a much more liberal policy than the state of Texas is now going to impose. In effect, Texas is not allowing abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, and many women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. And the Supreme Court had a chance to weigh in and actually took a vote, which is unusual, late on Wednesday night, and it was five to four among the justices to let this new Texas law stand. Certainly one of the liberal justices, Sonia Sotomayor, was outraged. She says that the majority of the court had decided to bury their heads in the sand when there's this law in Texas, as she put it, engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights. So you may wonder why did the court become more conservative on the subject of abortion? And the answer is the four years of Donald Trump as president. He was able to put justices on the court who are obvious conservatives and perhaps are even looking for an opportunity to reverse that decision from 1973 known as Roe versus Wade that gave women the right to choose. And so we might be on the edge of a very big change in the U.S. when it comes to abortion rights. Reactions on both sides of this, of course, with um, opponents of abortion saying this is a historic decision and saying, you know, that this is a great victory for the rights of the unborn. President Biden called the Texas law extreme, said it will greatly impact women's access to health care, especially for low income individuals and communities of color. And he said the outrageous part and critics of the law agree is that the law was engineered, as Dan said, to get around legal challenges, and it actually deputizes private citizens 
to bring lawsuits against anyone they believe that has helped a woman to get an abortion. That could be a family member, that could be a receptionist at a healthcare clinic, a healthcare worker, or a stranger. If the person wins the lawsuit, a private citizen, they get a $10,000, what some are calling a bounty. And you see now groups going online and saying, help us enforce this. You know, basically, if you know someone who's trying to get an abortion, turn them in. And a lot of people are very concerned about that creating the kind of climate that that would create. By the way, at this point, though Texas is a very large state, of course, the likely result is that women who have an unwanted pregnancy will travel to other states to have an abortion. But again, if the Supreme Court of the United States eventually reverses that landmark ruling from the year 1973 and bans most abortions in this country, then we might return to darker days where women went to illegal clinics and had dangerous abortions. This landmark 1973 decision in the Roe case, as you mentioned, Dan, could be in jeopardy next term when the Supreme Court, with a 6-3 conservative majority, reviews a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. Very good points on this issue, but it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, the fifth strongest hurricane to hit the U.S. coastline leaves deaths and destruction. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panelists who are joining me via Skype, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Dan Raviv, columnist for Newsday. Well, Dan, Hurricane Ida smashed into Louisiana as a Category 4 storm. What is the latest that you have on this devastating hurricane? After Ida made landfall in Louisiana, as you say, Category 4, uh, which is the second most extreme storm, the winds, the sustained winds, were 150 miles an hour, which is 240 kilometers per hour. The damage done by the wind, and then you add so much rain. It came from the water of the Gulf of Mexico, and so there were at least seven deaths, but fears of even more. And the storm then made its way north and to the northeast. And in New Jersey and New York, Wednesday night and Thursday morning, record amounts of rain fell, causing at least nine deaths. So billions of dollars of damage. And just to tie it back to President Joe Biden, this is another test of his competence as president. Even as he planned a trip to Louisiana to see the damage, it is always a test for a president not just how they behave, do they show sympathy and empathy, but also do they send enough money? Is the federal national government actually sending enough to help people? Were they well enough prepared? This was a major problem for President George W. Bush in the year 2005 when Louisiana was hit by Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans, the whole city, was flooded. And President Bush then was seen as a failure. So that's why it's another test for Joe Biden and, of course, as well as the human disaster and the financial hit, it's going to have political impact. Cindy, what is the Biden administration doing in terms of providing aid from this hurricane? 
The images that we're seeing now are flooded subways in New York City as Ida is not done with the U.S. And we saw that the subways were flooded. And so Biden is going to be visiting Louisiana. And now it looks like there will be also the aid required for cities in the northeast. So very destructive hurricane. And as a lot of climate scientists are saying that these storms are getting worse, and we're seeing tornadoes and other extreme weather events in areas that we didn't traditionally see them in the past. The hurricane spawned tornadoes and drenched the region with heavy rains. So, Dan, it's created such a path of destruction. I'm struck that as we watch the news around the world about a very hot summer in many parts of the world and more extreme weather than we're used to, whether this is a case for climate change as being a major issue. President Donald Trump said he didn't believe climate change is a, is a major concern. He did not believe that the oil and natural gas industries are contributing to the problem. Joe Biden says he does. He has the former senator and former secretary of state John Kerry as a special ambassador on the climate change issue. Kerry planning a big meeting with China and other countries. And this, by the way, goes back to uh, former Vice President Al Gore, also a member of the Democratic Party. And he had an award-winning movie, you may recall, a documentary in the year 2006, An Inconvenient Truth, where he said that global warming and climate change would cause extreme weather. And certainly there are people who say, look, it seems to be happening now. Yes, it certainly looks that way. And I just want to move on to get our last topic in. The European Union has removed the U.S. from its safe travel list and no longer recommends its member states ease restrictions on non-essential travel for all Americans. The EU's updated guidance comes as the U.S. faces its fourth wave of COVID-19 driven by the highly contagious Delta variant. So, Cindy, what has been the response of the Biden administration to the these new recommendations? The State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, was asked about it, and he said, we appreciate the transparency of our European partners on this, and basically the U.S. can't say a whole lot because the U.S. is still not allowing European Union travelers into the U.S., and some would see these recommendations as sort of a, you know, a trade-off or a reprisal even from the European Union. But I think the important thing to note is that these are just recommendations from the European Union. They are not binding on any one particular country of the 27-member bloc. And so far, no country has put restrictions on American travelers. As a matter of fact, many of the southern countries in Europe, the Mediterranean countries, are very dependent on tourist revenue, and they want American travelers back. And Greece and Spain have said they are not planning on changing their restrictions in the coming weeks. They want Americans to come. Spain doesn't have any restrictions on American travelers. A French official said, we welcome American travelers. And France, they would like to see either a negative test or a proof of a COVID vaccine. But so far, these are recommendations only. I mean, I think it will sort of create uncertainty among some would-be American vacation goers to Europe. But for now, some would argue, look, the rates are really going up, COVID rates, especially among children and young people in the U.S., that Europe is a safer place to be right now. More people in Europe, a higher percentage of the populations are vaccinated, with some countries around 70 percent than in the U.S.
Yeah, the vaccination rates had been uh, lower in Europe compared with the United States a few months ago. But it seems that here in the U.S., vaccinations have pretty much plateaued. There are uh, more than 20 percent of Americans, according to opinion polls, who will never get inoculated. They don't believe in the vaccine. They think it's dangerous. And so far, of course, more than 40 percent of Americans have said no to the vaccine. But little by little, authorities are optimistic here. But I was struck by this in the recommendation from the European Union. It says that its member nations should exclude unvaccinated travelers from the United States and other countries, unvaccinated. And so I know a lot of Americans who say, good, it's one more message telling people to get vaccinated. You'll be able to travel. You'll be able to take vacations. If you are unvaccinated, you are going to be treated as a pariah. You're someone who might spread COVID-19. And so vaccinated people, especially if they get that third vaccination that's being described as a booster, that's going to be starting in large numbers in the United States in the coming weeks. That may be sending actually a good message and may help restore the tourism industry. And we will have to end the show on that note. My thanks to our panelists, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Dan Ravive, Columnist for Newsday. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.